Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, everybody. We are on our second live cast with the infectious disease boys. We're talking all things COVID. We're getting serious again. Well, kind of serious. I don't know if you saw the last live cast, you recognize <laughs> it's not going to be that serious. Um, so yeah, we're excited. We're going to talk a little bit about schools. We're going to talk about what's going on down south, uh, sports teams, gyms, everything you can think of that's um, recently come come up in terms of COVID-19. So before getting started, i get some housekeeping things out of the way. I want to thank Julia Hajar, who's going to be fielding some questions. She is the queen bee in our, our, our group at Solving Healthcare. She's got, uh, once again, has that awesome website, A Spoonful of Science, if you're looking for any nutritional knowledge, especially in, in, in the context of the pandemic. So just want to give you a shout out, Julia. Also want to give a shout out to Give a Mile, our, our uh, merchandise this month. Hold on, I got to do my Vanna White, Vanna Black. <laughs> merchandise this month is we're for the month of august where our proceeds are going to go to give them out i gotta tell you about this if you haven't heard episode i think it's 54 ish with kevin crow where he uh basically connects dying patients with their families through donation of your air miles it's such a beautiful thing they also take get ca- uh cash donations so we'll be um trying to fundraise for them in the month of August. Kevin, if you're listening, love you, brother. You're doing some special work, my friend. Last thing, we are having our first virtual summit. We, as you know, we are a big advocate of trying to get our our people healthier, our patients healthier. And one way of doing that is a low-carb or ketogenic approach to health, uh, especially in the the context of COVID-19, improving your metabolic profile. So August 9th, 3.30 p.m., sign up. You, for 20 bucks, you get the basic package where you, you get the live footage. $49, you get um, the recording, video, audio, and the transcripts. And you get CME credit. We got accredited. That's how gangster we are. We got accredited for this bad boy. So three and a half hours or whatever it is, you, uh, you'll get full, uh, full of knowledge. And so we'll send the links uh, in, the, in the notes there. Last thing. If you want uh, the direct video and audio of this live cast, type in ID into the text box uh, or NL. I think ID or NL, and we'll be sending you the materials. So uh, thank you, everybody, for doing that. Okay. Our two guests today, I don't even feel like they need an introduction, to be honest with you. Suman Chakrabarty and Isaac Bogart, you're going to see them on CTV, CBC, talking all things COVID. And I guess recently, CNN, mother, like, that's real, dog. You know, <laughs> like, that's serious. Um, so, yeah, these guys are super knowledgeable. They're go-to guys in the country in terms of what's going on with COVID-19. So I just want to really uh, thank you guys for making the appearance again. 
Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having us, man. Cheers. Oh, man. We love this being time, here. Absolutely. This time I brought my, my Vigno, my $9, there we go. $9 a bottle Vigno. Fine. Okay. And uh, <laughs> we're starting off well. I, I, I got to say, too, I got to give love to, um, to Suman. He was texting like crazy. He was like, uh, I got these uh, interview techniques that you might want to be able to use here. It's like, I'm like, okay, Larry King. We'll, uh, we'll, get, we'll get going here. So my, my I'm telling you how to do your podcast. Isn't that the way it should be? <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Are oh my you God. joking? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And so I'm going to start with the, the Suman style. Buddy, this, this question is directed to Suman Chakrabadi. We, when we were texting each other this morning, you brought up a great point, which I don't know if I would have got to, is these, like, what to expect in the future here with the in the fall like we're, we're expecting we're going to see these new cases come up and personally from the media you got to get a sense that there's a there's a sense of panic when we hear these increasing cases and so forth what's your perspective on all this yeah this is an actually an awesome point just before i move on i just want to point out that i no longer have the mountain bunker behind me i actually have like <laughs> something that is half as good as isaac has behind him but it's it gives a little bit of, it balances a little bit of what's happening here. Fake plant. Uh, and, and a plant, yeah, that's what I need. Fake. Uh, fake. Uh, no, so th that's a great point. I think that and it's one of the things that uh, uh, Isaac and I have been talking a lot with one of our buddies, Zane, as well, is that, you know, moving forward now, we're in this new phase of the, the pandemic. Uh, we're now at an awesome point in Canada. It wasn't perfect to get here, but it's amazing. We're at low community transmission. What we're going to be hearing over and over again for the next several months is these clusters are going to be popping up. All right. And a couple of things that I want to remind people that these clusters, the fact that they pop up is actually a good thing. It means that we are um, identifying them and able to kind of quash them or as Isaac says, quell them early. So as you get small fires, you prevent them from becoming big ones. And another big thing to remember is that what's happening in the States is really scary, but it took weeks and weeks and weeks of uncontrolled growth to get there. So if you're starting to see these kind of uh, things popping up all over the country, it doesn't mean that we're going to all of a sudden explode into you know, epidemic growth right away. Uh, and I think that right now we're in a good spot. We're going to see stuff. We have to keep an eye on things, but I think that ultimately we're doing the right thing going into stage three, and at least in, in an Ontario in stage three. Unreal, unreal. Isaac, any, anything to add to that? Oh, really? I just, you know, obviously we're doing all right uh, right now and, and uh, kudos to Canada for getting here. I think it's obviously it's been tough, right? Everyone was locked down for a few months and took a tremendous personal toll, financial toll, psychological toll, emotional toll, but we got here. And uh, now the, the goal is to maintain it as much as possible, see if we can even suppress this even further. Uh, I think it's just, unfortunately the sad reality that as we enjoy our summer, we're going to come toward cooler months ahead and September, October, it's just, it's just going to get cooler and cooler and people are going to cluster indoors. And we know this virus uh, likes to be transmitted in indoor environments with lots of people who are in close proximity for prolonged periods of time. doesn't matter if it's a bar, a school, a synagogue, a recreational center. It just doesn't matter. If, when we get those four things, uh, we see this virus transmitted. And uh, I think that many of us watching this sort of expect that we're going to see a rise in cases in, in the fall. Uh, fortunately, behind the scenes, there's an all-hands-on-deck approach. I mean, they're stockpiling PPE. They're getting lab capacity ready. There's protocols. There's early detection systems. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's happening behind the scenes. 
And the goal is A, prevent that, and B, if we do see that, you know, the second wave, uh, hopefully all those, all those uh, policies and, and all that infrastructure will be put to good work and we can really dampen that as much as possible. Uh, absolutely. So this might seem like a silly question, but I was listening to a podcast and they were trying to define second wave. Like what, did, what really does that mean? And from I think you it's guys all before. crap. <laughs> it's crap. No, I mean, like it's an epidemiologic term that's kind of irrelevant in the sense. I mean, listen, the epidemiologists are going to start emailing me angry hate mail and stuff like that. But like when you think about the Y axis of uh, cases, the X axis of time, you know, you see the wave and then it comes down, you know, and, and people are saying, well, you have to come all the way down and, and, and or, or, you know, you have to have no cases for a while or whatever. I mean, the point is, we have a very susceptible population. Some of the seroepidemiology studies have come out in Canada. We have like, you know, in the most heavily impacted places, we have maybe 1.5% of the population affected. Most places are far less than 1%. So you have a very susceptible population with a very contagious virus. The point is, if this virus gets introduced, it can take off like wildfire if we let our guard down. And, um, you know, whether it's a spike in the first wave or a true second wave, it, it just doesn't matter. It just means we're seeing more cases and we got to really adhere to these public health restrictions to prevent this from taking off. Mm -hmm. mm. So um, getting back to the, the U.S. for a second, just, uh, just uh, before moving on, like what, what happened? Like just, I know it sounds like obviously when you see the pictures on, but like. What's with those guys? <laughs> exactly. Because I mean, the, the, the only reason I really want to, illustrate it is because i don't know if we you know it's a fair comparison like when we often yeah. see what's going on and we often tell ourselves this is going to be us next if um but maybe we'll start with suman larry yeah, king I mean, style what, what do you think uh happened like in the southern states there you know, it's it's honestly uh, not anything all that complicated. What happened is, and I want to remind people that uh, one of the diamonds in the rough in um, the U.S. response has been uh, Anthony Fauci. He's been unfortunately maligned a lot, but uh, the thing is, he's been doing a great job. And this very thing that we're doing, this this kind of staged approach, where we're going from you know something in slow opening, that was actually something that he and his team had uh, um, initially presented to the government uh, back in whatever it was, April. So the, the main thing with them is that they opened up uh, number one too soon, but remember they did get to a point where they were suppressing cases. So we we can't forget that they opened up too soon and they opened up too quickly. So um, Isaac and I remember we were talking about Vegas. Vegas had that big ad that you know opened for business, and you're looking at this. It's like they're in like whatever that hotel, that big hotel is, but they're the whole place is packed with people, and we just knew this was coming. So it's that's as simple as it is. And unfortunately, since that time, they have a population that, you know, um, I understand civil liberties. It's really, really important. But I think that they kind of are outweighing that with, with the greater good. So people don't want to wear masks. People don't want to uh, admit that there's a problem happening. And you're seeing what's happening in all over the, the states right now. And, and it's scary. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, I, they really had a knack for politicizing the virus. And it's done them such a disservice. And on top of that, you know, sadly, um, there's been, I think, weak, weak leadership on a political standpoint. There hasn't been weak public health leadership. I think, you know, got, like Sumon points out, you know, Tony Fauci is probably one of the world's best doctors and public health leaders. But uh, with some, I think, weak uh, at, the, at the federal level and at the state level, some weak 
leadership and a failure to really embrace science and data. Uh, I think it's been really, it's, they've had a rough go. And, and, you know, it's easy to stand north of the border and sort of point our fingers and be all smug about it. But at the end of the day, I mean, there are friends and our neighbors and there's still a lot of lives that are being lost. And a lot of this is, is completely preventable. It's awful to watch. I mean, we look at the numbers and we just, wow, you know, Florida with the day that 15,000 new cases a day, and you're just like, what is going on? But, uh, but like it, you know, the, you know, the human lives often get lost with, uh, with those numbers and with those graphs. So hopefully they turn it around soon. Cause it's really, uh, it's really unfortunate to watch. And, you know, Suman and I have some good friends that live and work down there that are intimately involved with the, uh, with, with the pandemic and you know, it's, it's pretty ugly in many of these places. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. Absolutely. Like, and to be clear, like, you know, it's not just the numbers are going up. You're also seeing hospitalizations, like, like real markers of, oh, yeah. of, of, of severity of, uh, yeah. of COVID-19. Yeah. Oh, you're um, seeing deaths. You're yeah. seeing, uh, you know, uh, hospital capacity and surge capacity. And, you know, there was a time in Houston was admitting, adults to their pediatric hospital they were uh the icus were full and they're shifting people out of houston to other icus like you know it's uh there's a you know they've reached an exceeded hospital capacity in many places in florida like it's just and keep in really, mind that, yeah, that, it's really too that bad. one scary thing for me was that texas medical center that was they they had surge capacity of 450 beds mm-hmm. surge capacity and that was full and i wow. I, I found that to be just Actually, although, uh, have you heard of what's going on there now? Have things gotten a bit better? Because I haven't heard I of the uh, New York City catastrophe yet. Well, I think they're, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but the, I, I, like, if you're, if you're in surge capacity, you're not firing on all cylinders. Like, just because you actually have beds, it doesn't mean that they're staffed well. I think when you're using surge capacity, typically the quality of care declines. And... Uh, uh, I mean, it's one thing to say you have 400 and something beds, but it's another thing of like, what's the quality of patient care? And, you know, we've seen uh, really, I mean, I was going to say interesting, but terrible data actually coming out of uh, New York and also France, where you look at, you know, excess mortality uh, and non-COVID mortality, like, you know, people are dying of uh, cardiovascular outcomes and stuff because A, they're either not coming to hospital for, for MIs because they're scared, or, or B, they are coming to hospital but they're just not getting the same appropriate level of care because, you know, the, the healthcare system is stretched beyond capacity. So it's a, it's a difficult, uh, uh, it's certainly awful to watch. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's not a stretch to think that if you are, if you are surging, you're not going to get optimal care. Like things are going to yeah. be missed. People that yeah. are normally taking, should be taking care of you. Aren't taking care of you. You're getting subspe- like not like non-specialty care. Get like so. Isaac looking after you. Like if you would yeah, come in, in the, in the ICU. Isaac, yeah. that's, that's what would happen. Suman right. doing surgery. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Why are you doing my bypass, son? Forget <laughs> about this. Um, this uh, I, I didn't think I was going to go into this, but I, 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 I think I want to dive into it a bit. The serologic testing. Every, anytime I read about this, I get the sense it's not sensitive or sensitive. So, or sensitive or specific, sorry. So for those that are um, non-medical, so I'm asking like their test to see if you've been exposed to the virus or if you're immune to the virus. And um, I actually took a test yesterday. They were offering um, for hospital staff to be able to, to, uh, uh, to screen. Um, and, uh, but yeah, when I read about it, you do get the sense that, I don't know how accurate these tests are. Do you guys get that sense as well? 
We'll start with yeah, crap. Or Isaac. Oh, sorry, uh, Sumon. No, no, yeah. We'll start with Sumon Chakrabarty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start with me. Sumon no, Chakrabarty. Yeah, you know. uh, yeah. Uh, I, I agree. You know, and I think that initially we were seeing that like, there was a lot of problems uh, with uh, sen- uh, specificity, actually. And uh, the thing is that, number one, there's lots of tests. I think Canada did a good job in terms of vetting which one they're going to use. There's tons of junk ones that were available uh, that were kind of pushed through approval in the States. Um, I don't know. You know, like... They talk about the main use for it in seroprevalence, uh, and I think that's good to see because uh, they've used it in, what was it, Vancouver, uh, Isaac, you were saying it's like 1.5, 2%, something like that uh, of the uh, population. That was Toronto. Uh, was, it, was it Toronto, huh? Yeah, and then uh, Van- like Vancouver was less than 1%. Yeah, it's got to be less than Van City, yo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a great, yeah, less than 1% of Van is like the most heavily impacted. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like at an individual level, you know, I think we have to timestamp all our conversations, right? Because like what's true now could be very different, you know, five minutes from now. But like, but, but, you know, currently, like you wouldn't do a serologic test and make individual patient level decisions based on the results of the test, just because there's a lot of false positive tests. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, but from a seroepidemiologic standpoint, like if you want to look at community level stuff. I think that's, I think it's fantastic. There's been some really cool studies that have come out looking at, you know, map. for example, there's a great study in Spain. So early on, Spain was just getting pummeled with this infection in different, different areas. And they have some pretty good countrywide serology studies that were done. And you can sort of see where the hotspots were. Uh, and even in the most heavily impacted places, you know, the only, I should say only, but about, you know, 15 up to as many as 20% of the population got infected, whereas the other places had, you know, maybe one or 2% of the people. And you sort of can take away, like, there's good lessons to learn from that. Because when we talk about, people often talk about natural immunity or herd immunity, yeah. and how, what, what it's going to take to get herd immunity. And, you know, an often quoted number, we don't need to get into the science behind it, but an often quoted number is about that, it's about a 60-ish, 70-ish percent of individuals need to be immune for there to be some element of herd immunity. But even in, so if you think about this, even the most heavily impacted places, Northern Italy, New York, uh, uh, parts of Spain, like these places, Wuhan, it's only about 20% of the people that are immune. So if the virus gets reintroduced there, it's going to take off like wildfire once again, because you're, you're not really close. You're really far away from, from herd immunity in those settings. So I think serology is really helpful for answering those sort of population macro level questions. But at an individual level, like you, you can't, as of today, you wouldn't be able to do patient level counseling saying your test is positive, you were exposed or you were infected, you're, you know, we just don't know. We just don't know. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I've, I've been hearing, I don't know if this is worth jumping on too, but uh, you hear different numbers when it comes to getting that herd immunity. Like I've, I've heard of numbers as low as it's 25%, which I don't know if mathematically like that doesn't really make sense to me but um yeah but you'll hear these numbers being thrown around and i i mean i don't know what to make of it it's like you know we don't know how much of our like i have truly i have no sense in locally in ottawa how many people have been exposed um and then yeah the whole question on are we have any level of herd immunity um yeah i mean getting to that 60 percent number where i I don't think we're most places would be even nah. close to that. Um, nah, we need a vaccine. Yeah, we need, But you okay. know, uh, one one interesting thing that this brings up. Think about a place like New York City, where well, I forget what it was. It was yeah, like Isaac said, twenty, thirty percent. You have a situation where like a tiny, a relatively small sliver of the population is getting sick, 
right? But they're all getting sick at the same time. And they get to the point, sick to the point where you're either hospitalized or you require a ventilator, or obviously both. But the thing, that's just kind of a, I think that's another big thing that I've noticed in the States is that uh, people are often quoting the death rate, death rate, mm-hmm. death rate. It's low, it's low, it's not much more than the flu. Maybe that's the case, but the issue is it's not about the fact that the death rate is low. It's the fact that whoever's going to die, they are all in the hospital at the same time. And I think that's the big thing to kind of, you really need to kind of stress that to people who are not on the, on the medical side of things. That's a really good point. Like it's, yeah, it's like putting pressure on the system when that much, that many people are coming into hospital. Um, We, we, I mean, we could talk the vaccine right now, actually. Um, any more insight or hope or optimism since we last talked about the de- uh, development of a vaccine? We'll start with yeah. Suma Chakub. No, we're talk- we'll start, start with, with Isaac. Isaac. Start we'll start with Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, sure. Okay, <laughs> this is like my favorite topic because there's like a total rainbow and unicorn conversation like it's fantastic like it's just there's some incredible progress on the vaccine front right we've got there's about 190 vaccines under development about 30 of them are in human trials so either phase one phase two or phase three clinical trials of those 30 ish i think there's like five or six that are in phase three clinical trials for people that aren't down with the lingo (laughs) phase three clinical trials are like when you're testing it in humans and you're testing it on thousands and thousands and thousands of people because you're actually answering the question, does this work, yes or no? And to what extent will this work? You're also looking at safety as well. So you've got a bunch of like, like you know, and then, then you've got, uh, you have like uh, the Oxford vaccine study. We're gonna have results of those phase three clinical trials probably sometime, I don't know, end of August, early September. Uh, uh, We've got some great uh, other vaccines. I'm just blanking on the name right now. Of course, it might be a little lagavulin <laughs> here. But uh, there's a couple of other vaccine studies that are in phase three clinical trials. That He's not drinking lagavulin, by the way. Don't, don't believe him on that oh, one. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's the poor man's lagavulin. It's uh, Bullmore. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome stuff. But it is the poor oh, man's yes. lagavulin. Yeah, but I mean, there's some great, uh, there's like, um, you know, you got Moderna who's entering a phase three clinical trial enrolling 30,000 people in the, uh, in the United States. Like there's just tons of progress. Like if this isn't a matter of if it's a matter of when, um, I think the other exciting one is Johnson and Johnson just released some data recently and they're, they're entering some, uh, uh, human clinical trials as well. The interesting thing about the Johnson and Johnson one is it's probably going to be, I mean, it's too soon to tell, but it might be like a one shot deal instead of a two shot deal, whereas the other ones might be two shots. So, Regardless, there's a bunch of different approaches. They're, they're not inching along. They're like going forward at record speed. And it's amazing what you can do when you have, you truly have billions of dollars at your disposal. Like there's infinite resources available for this. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So it's, so you, you sound pretty optimistic that there'll be something available. I mean, we don't talk, we, I, it's not clear to me what the timelines would be there, but, but it sounds like there's progress happening. Um, yeah, you got a sense of timeline. Yeah, like listen, if everything goes right, which we know it always does. So if everything <laughs> goes right, we're looking at late 2020. If everything goes right, I think a more realistic option is early 2021. However, having said that, some amazing things are happening. Canada 
bought 37 million vials to administer a vaccine that doesn't exist. Canada has a vaccine passport that is prioritizing who's going to get it, how it's going to be delivered, when it's going to get like, so there's like all, everything's getting lined up so that there will be the lowest time interval between getting a vaccine and starting vaccine programs. Other places, for example, like the United States has something called Operation Warp Speed, where they just look at all the candidate vaccines. They say, you know what? We're going to buy all of them. We're going to just make gazillions of uh, doses of all these different vaccines. Hey, and guess what? Some of them aren't even going to work out. We're just going to waste those billions of dollars and discard them because if one of them works out, we already have enough produced so we can start our vaccine programs with little time delay. Like that's what countries are doing. And it's, it's incredible to see. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm in the know at all, but that's pretty it's pretty reassuring to know that the red tape element of things like is being addressed. Like they're trying to do their best to overcome bureaucracy, to think of ways to streamline some of these, um, the the vaccine and the availability of the vaccine, which is unbelievable. And safety, I don't think is going to be compromised. I, I really don't. I know people who are vaccine nervous or vaccine hesitant or are worried about the, the pace of uh, exploration. I think a lot of this was driven because, first of all, a lot of the vaccines that are being produced are using pre-existing vaccine infrastructure and you know safe vaccines that have already been used and implemented in real-world settings, just with a tiny tweak to to ensure that it's protective against COVID-19. And and, and the ones that haven't been successfully used in humans, are, like new newer developments. I mean, again, there's like infinite. Re- it's amazing what you can do in money is not an issue. Like it's, it's amazing what you can do and the research and the progress that you can make. So I think these are going to be, you know, as safe as any other vaccine that we have. So I, I'm not, I'm not really concerned. I mean, they're doing the phase three trials. What makes me nervous is uh, two things, uh, Russia and China. So Russia, we're, we're hearing a, a couple of days ago is claims that they have a vaccine and is going to start some mass vaccine programs. Cool. Interesting. There's some brilliant scientists in Russia. Like they, they're, they're tremendous, but, but like we haven't seen any data from Russia. Like, do they have phase one trials, phase two trials? Like, do they have do the phase three trials? It doesn't sound like it based on what we're hearing in the news. I appreciate that that might not be the whole story, but like, what are they doing? You know, you should really have phase three clinical trials and safety data before you start administering a vaccine. Same thing with China. I mean, China started uh, giving this uh, one of the vaccines that only made it through phase two clinical trials and they're giving it to the army in China. So I think that's pretty interesting as well. Like before I'd start implementing these vaccines, you really want to see the safety protocols and and safety profile of a phase three clinical trial and also the efficacy as well. So, I mean, it's a little shady, I think, but maybe it is. And we just, maybe we just don't have all the information, but based on what we have, you know, it doesn't seem like the, the best approach. And Suman, you feeling as optimistic as well, like uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the the progress with vaccine vaccination? Yeah, my thing with the vaccination is that it's, it is really, really uh, remarkable to see all these people working together. You have all these resources. It's happening at a breakneck speed. Uh, I think that more realistically, just kind of looking at things, I'm thinking that more likely it'll be 
uh, you know, April, May, uh, mid 2021. Uh, but that said, I, I'm, I'm with Isaac on the general idea that it's going to be there. I'll tell you one thing that has bothered me since the very beginning. Um, and the, that's the idea of something called antibody dependent enhancement. So uh, the long and short of it is, is that you have this uh, vaccine or you have something we saw with the dengue vaccine, unfortunately, yes. with young kids where you get vaccine, you get these kind of partially neutralizing antibodies. So what you end up doing is you get the virus, you partially neutralize it and you concentrate it in your macrophages. That, that's your immune cells. So now what happens, you have a whole bunch of partially neutralized virus, which actually then um, makes this massive immune response and you get way more sick. And that's what we see happening with dengue. And it has been described with coronaviruses as well, not, not um, uh, COVID, but uh, previous coronaviruses. So there's one thing that's bothering me in the back of my mind. Is this a possibility with one of these vaccines? I hope not. I'm thinking not. But the thing is, it's just one of the things that I think that if we see it, we'll probably see it in the post-marketing studies. But that said, if when the vaccine comes out, I would get it. I would give it to my kids. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we talked to Paul often about that. Actually, he thought he almost thought, I almost felt like, uh, he, he, like when it came to the, sorry, I forget the dengue fever term, um, where you get the hyper antibody dependent enhancement or the, yeah, or the, yeah. yeah antibody dependent enhancement. Um, he, he, def, he thought it was unlikely, but I, I didn't, I didn't realize other coronaviruses have, 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 uh, have done that before. Um, and to, to be clear, like when the dengue fever, kids got that vaccine and they, uh, like they passed from it. It was my understanding. Um, yeah, so some yeah. had more severe infection. Absolutely. There were yeah. some, uh, some had, a, so, certainly some had a more severe infection because of it. Yeah. But I mean, like you said, with this amount of resources going in, you, I would think, I would hope to, th to think that we'd be able to, uh, to analyze that or see that, or if it's, if it does happen that we would acknowledge it and uh, do our best to mitigate that. Um, so, and, and one other question, any other treatments that are getting you guys excited in the ID world of late? Because I was listening to um, another show too about, you know, are we putting all our eggs in one basket with the vaccine? Like say if it was less effective than we thought or, you know, I'm just saying hypothetically virus mutates more rapidly than we're hoping or what have you. Is there anything else down the pipeline that you guys are like, yeah, man, this is a possibility of making things joyous. You take this one. Sure. I mean, uh, so there's uh, a few things. So one is, um, I mean, it's a recent innovation since we chatted last. It's the uh, dexamethasone. I mean, I love that that worked. I love that there's uh, good data demonstrating a decreased probability of death. Pretty, pretty important outcome, uh, <laughs> especially in uh, those who were hospitalized who required oxygen. I love that it's cheap, cheap, cheap. I love that it's widely available. I love that there's great data showing mortality benefit. I mean, this is just, we're, we needed a win and we got a win. That's fantastic. And then in terms of like other drugs that are under development or under, under consideration, I, I'd watch out. There's a class of drugs called the interferons. Uh, there's, you know, arrows pointing in the direction that they may be effective. I bet if they are effective, I bet it's going to be for the sicker end of the spectrum, like the hospitalized end of the spectrum. But who knows? We'll see. I, I, I like those. And I, I really am looking forward to some of the um, not just the treatment uh, trials, but also the prophylaxis trials. Like I yeah. think uh, – 
know, people who are exposed, like you imagine a nursing home, if there's a case in a nursing home, if you just go throughout that nursing home and give everyone a pill or an inoculation and can prevent infection in people who might've been exposed, I mean, you, you'll do a lot of good. Uh, so I'm excited about those trials as well. But I really think that, like, I mean, the vaccine is the way to go. I think people's mindset about the vaccine is that it's got to be, like you point out, 100% effective. Like, no, it doesn't. It would be amazing if it was one and done. You know, you get a shot, you're good for the next 10 or 20 years or something like that. I don't think that's going to be a realistic possibility. It might be, but I, it's less likely. But even if, it's, even if it provides some degree of immunity for some period of time, you know, like if, analogous to the flu, you know, 40 to 60% uh, protection. If you do get the infection, you're, you're, you're not going to get a, a severe infection. If it can do that, it's a, it, it'll be a huge win. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough uh, that'll turn this from a, you know, a deadly disease in, uh, in, in the elderly and, and those with uh, other underlying uh, health, health issues to something that's far less deadly, I think. We'll, if, it, if it can do that, we will be able to slide, at least start that slide uh, on our scale back to normalcy. Nice, nice. Because, uh, Suman, I don't know if you, you caught that. Uh, I don't know what they call themselves. There was, I had a couple people send me the video of the hydroxychloroquine, like, I don't know what you want to call them. There, there was a woman. The rogues. On, the, 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 the rogue physicians? Yes, the rogue physicians. Oh. Yeah. What, what's going on? There? Like, so... Because last time I checked uh, the hydroxychloroquine data, I thought we were pretty happy with saying that it's ineffective or, and, and, in fact, maybe harmful. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know if you, uh, it sounds like you got a chance to catch that uh, <laughs> action. I, I did catch that. And there's something that I, I've noticed, and this is something that goes back to what we were talking about with the, uh, what's going on in the States. And I think that, you know, we're always going to see this fringe on, uh, on social media. Social media has unfortunately polarized discussion and amplifies the fringes. And, you know, it, it's interesting. If you see what was happening with that hydroxychloroquine thing is that it kind of um, brings up that conspiracy theory. It's that this thing works it's easy, it's cheap, but we're keeping you from having it. Listen, if hydroxychloroquine worked, that would be amazing. It's so, it's so available and it's cheap as anything. You know, and, and the thing is, it's relatively, not, not completely, but it's relatively safe. And I don't understand what people would gain by saying that it doesn't work. But I think that it's interesting. That was, it seemed like it was almost coordinated. It's like, we're going to put this video out and then you're going to have somebody saying that, People aren't listening to us. We can cure people. And the thing is that I think the one thing that really works is that they talk in such certain terms, right? Yeah. None of us ever talk in terms that are certain, right? Even with dexamethasone, you know, it might help you if you, uh, you know, if you're somebody who's on oxygen and you're kind of not sick, right? You know what I mean? But the yeah. point is with this, they say, you know what? I have 300 patients. I gave them hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and they got better. And you know what? That kind of message really, really resonates with people. And I think that when, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, here we go again. And I, and I don't know what the purpose of that is, but it certainly has kind of brought that back into the, the forefront of the conversation. Yeah. No, it's uh... like, what do you gain by that? Like for real, like, what do we, what do like, what does an individual or society gain by that? Like there's awesome data, like, you know, how all data isn't created equally. And we have some great prospective, randomized, blinded clinical trials, like the highest caliber data demonstrating that it doesn't work. So like, I don't quite understand what we're doing here. <laughs> like, nah, what? 
I like, why must we have this conversation once a month? Why does this keep coming up? Like, it's just, yeah. we just focused all this energy on, you know, hunger, poverty, finding a cure for COVID-19, vaccines. Like we could do a lot of good things if we just like, think about the collective hours, you know, yeah. the collective hours that are, are spent trying to debunk this bullshit. Like, it's just, it's insane. Yeah. I, I, it was and the, the other thing that you always got to uh, get nervous about is when they start throwing down their credentials before they say anything. Do you know oh, what I mean? Uh, I have worked in this environment for this long. I have a yeah. PhD and no one knows yeah. what. And, uh, yeah. and they start throwing down We're all down like, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. <laughs> We're all so proud of you. Your parents yeah. must be spelling. They're great. You've got a PhD. Hey, like, listen. So why I are you speaking my, bullshit I did my on my first year residency at Mount Sinai Hospital, and I slept in a room where the toilet was not part of the, there was no wall. There's no ceiling to the wall. I was in there. I'm one of the best universities in the entire world, okay? That, that, that's what I should be telling That people. call room was famous. Remember that call room? It was oh, famous. Yeah. There's like a toilet right in the middle of the room. And there's <laughs> and a wall. There's like there's the, a wall, but no ceiling. <laughs> they fixed it because I think it like wasn't up to code or like the resident union complaint. <laughs> there's just like, and you'd have that call room and people would just like come in to go to the bathroom. And you'd have like, uh, I'm here, guys. <laughs> like, oh, man. It was so bad. It's funny. I feel like every hospital's got that, got the room. Yeah. We had this one, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to make this story short, but one of the call rooms was roasting hot at the Civic, roasting. And one of uh, a colleague of mine, you know, he's sleeping with his shirt off because it's so hot, code blue on the fifth floor. So he gets up, just beelines it to the fifth floor, realizes halfway up there that he's got no shirt on. And he's like, <laughs> Do I go save a life or do I go get my shirt? So he goes, he goes in the room. He's giving CPR topless. Uh, oh, my God. Everyone's like, what the hell? Um, I think one of the key things we got to talk about, because this is probably the most pressing or the, the, the thing I get asked about the most was kids going back to school, what we should do. You get the sick kids. Cats that sick kids coming out with a statement locally in Ottawa, a CEO of our children's hospital, Alex Munter, is like, they need to go back. We need to be smart about this. None, none of this half, um, like half day approach or sorry, like this um, half virtual approach. They need to be back mm -hmm. properly. From you guys' perspective, what do you guys think? Like, what, what would, if you guys were king for a day or month or whatever? How would you approach this uh, kids going back to school? Suman Chakrabarty. Oh, I'll take this one. <laughs> I have kids in school. No, uh, no. Uh, honestly, though, I, I think that uh, this is an amazing quote from a guy named Dr. Michael Ryan from uh, WHO. And he said something a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago. The best thing we can do for our kids uh, in order to make things safe, and it's actually safety all over the community, is have low community spread. And that's where we right now are at in Canada. If you have low community spread, you know, it's better than physical distancing, it's better than hand washing. And by the way, I'm not saying to not do it, you still do it. I'm just saying that it just makes the risk of everything so much uh, smaller. And I think that I, I tend to agree. Like I was looking at uh, this report 
It is a thankless job. It is really, really complicated. And it's something that involves, you know, the, the, the nearest and dearest things to us in, in uh, our lives, which is our kids. And I think that, uh, you know, kudos to the Sick Kids group and, you know, also Chio, they, 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 were, they put out a couple of statements as well. Um, so it's, it's going to be tough, but I agree overall that you need to have the kids back in school. You know, there's things you can do to mitigate the risk. Uh, and I also understand that you can't keep going back and forth between kind of a hybrid and then full school because you have parents who are working that is just going to cause havoc. Right. But that said, there are risks. We have seen that kids tend to be, uh, you know, I'm going to be careful with my words here. Kids can get the, infe- get the infection. They can spread it as well. But overall, the risk is smaller. It's just there and you have to consider it. There's also the big idea that, you know, we're not in peds, any of the three of us, but kids are so different, whether you're four years old versus if you're 14 years old. And these are all things that they have to constantly be thinking of. So I, I, I saw a lot of people upset that we're not recommending, or not we, but the peds aren't recommending masks for six years old, six year old. Like, how would you do that, right? You have to be pragmatic about things. So I just think that this is a very difficult situation. The term that I've heard, it's a wicked problem, one that has many solutions, none of them are perfect. And I think that overall, we will be good as long as we keep community transmission low. And uh, I think that I'm one of the people that thinks that we should go back, you know, um, not half-ass, we should be using our whole ass. That's the way that I feel. <laughs> All right. You never heard that one before? No. That's a Sarnia classic, I, I, I dude. Don't, I don't know. I just, Sarnia classic. I didn't, I didn't see it coming. And, then, <laughs> and like, if you guys are listening or, or like, you had to see the face too. It was like, there was so much joy in it. Not half ass, but full ass. Full ass. Simon, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about, <laughs> actually. No, no, no. PG, PG-13. PG-13. MC-17. MC-17. How about like how about you, Isaac? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm with Suman. I, I totally agree. I mean, all those points are I think spot on. And and you, you know, look at the plans. Like BC and Ontario, Manitoba released their plans today. They're all you know they have a lot of similarities, right? You're really trying to apply fundamental public health principles into the school: mask wearing, hand hygiene, distancing where you can. You know, they're dumping like well, Ontario dumping in three hundred nine million dollars for PPE for extra teachers for, you know, there's cohorting, like they're really, they're doing the right thing. I think the key here is there's twofold. One is implementation, right? It's great to have plans. It's great to have this playbook that they made, but at the, like the rubber hits the road at the level of the school. And if it's implemented well, it should be okay. If it's not implemented well, we might be in trouble. Uh, the second thing is the degree of flexibility that they have for home learning, right? There's just some kids who, if they get this infection, they're going to be more likely to have a poor outcome. Or there's some kids who come from a family where if they bring it home, someone in their family is more likely to have a poor outcome. All the programs that I've seen have a ton of flexibility for home learning, e-learning, you know, all this online stuff. That's great. You've got to have that. You've got to have that flexibility. But like Suman says, suppressing community transmission is is like the number one priority, and then the rest is is gravy. I mean, you know, they'll 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 find ways to implement these public health measures in the school. And and, and I totally appreciate that. Like, you know, it's it's going to be hard to you know get kids in grade one to stop picking each other's nose and eating it, right? Like that's just going to be hard to do because mm-hmm. I'm told that's what kids in grade one do. But the uh, the 
the, or you, you know, <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> But you know, uh, you can hand out masks, and 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 you know, obviously, grade four and up is gonna is, are, are gonna wear them. But you can at least try. And some of the younger kids appreciating that many aren't going to. Teachers and ancillary staff can wear masks. Uh, you can use the gym uh, for for extra room. You've got outdoors while the weather's okay, and do a lot of teaching outdoors because we know outdoor environments are much 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 safer from a transmission standpoint. Like, there's a lot of creative innovations you can do to make this as safe as possible. And of course. It's not going to be perfect. There's some people that can't go back and there's flexibility in the system to accommodate for that. So I think in general, I think they've done a good job. Are you, this is, but like, yeah, are you going to make everyone happy with something like this? No, not at all. But I, I think they, I think this sort of version two that they've come out with is, is, is rather good. Yeah. I, and to me, I agree with everything, all the above. I just, to me, just think the priority should be the kids though. Like, like we really should try and, allow them to be kids again in the safest way possible. Uh, and, and at the same time, like, like one of the school, a couple of school boards were talking about two days on walk then off and then wash two days with the next cohort. Like, it's not like, like, I shouldn't say it's not logical. It's what well, it kind of is not logical. It's not practical. Like, you know, yeah. someone that has three, we have three kids. What if uh, two of them are on one day, the other ones on the other days, like, it's just, it's too much. And so, I think um, we just got to be adaptable. Whatever we throw down, if we do start to surge and get, get heavier community spread, then we need to, to adapt. But I think uh, the kids need to go back to school. I'm sorry. Um, last kind of topic before we throw down some questions. I'm interested to hear you guys' perspective on, on masks. And the, so I'll full disclosure, I, I, Initially, I thought it was odd that, in, at least in Ottawa, we were having like, there were some days where we were having no transmission at all, like uh, no positive tests. And uh, we were going into phase, before going into phase three, and they were putting mandatory masks in um, indo- uh, indoors. And Continue. Please continue. Please continue. And I was like, <laughs> what is, ha-? like, I don't get it. And part of the problem that I had was, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way. Like, I'm going to... No, no, no. Continue. I'm I'm gonna, think I'm gonna, love where this is going. I gonna, love I'm, where this is going. You I'm know gonna, why? Pause for one second. Okay, one okay, second. okay, okay. Because three of us can be open-minded and have a civil discussion over this. Whereas <laughs> you can't do that in every setting. Like, yeah. whatever you say, I'm pretty happy with whatever, whatever direction you go in. And we can actually have a reasonable, civil, and logical discussion, which seems to be challenging with this topic and also the school discussion as well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) And I'm going to preface this because I'm going to get heat for this a little bit, I'm sure. But Eh. uh, I'm prefacing this is I want to do what's best for our people in general, okay? What's going to keep our people safe in general, okay? So my concern with... Like, especially, like, so, number one, from an evidence point of view, I don't know how, when it comes, especially to homemade cloth masks, I don't know how effective they are, personally, from the little that I've read. Um, But my angst is, like, do, are we teaching cats how to use a mask? Like, you watch them. They'll, They'll go to Costco with their gloves on as well, and 
they'll adjust this thing, they'll put it down here, they'll touch everything, they'll cough into their hand, adjust it again. You know, like, I, I just don't know if, when you say everyone's got to wear a mask indoors, I just worry that without the education on how to use the mask properly, isn't there the possibility that the, it could make things worse? That, that was like in the back of my mind. You know what I mean? And I know this is, this is just me thinking out loud a bit, but I just wanted to hear you guys' perspective when, with, when it comes to not only your thoughts on when we made masks mandatory indoors, but also like the evidence for it. So like we could, you, got, you guys got the stage here. I'm going to start Suman. with Suman Go, Chakrabarty. Suman Chakrabarty. I had a mask here, but uh, I was going to put it on for this, just to add some performative uh, flair. So, yeah, this is absolutely something that I think that uh, one of the things that, and I myself at the very beginning of this had a, um, we're talking about back in like April when, when Isaac and I first started talking. Oh, wait, about Suman, Suman. So before I start, just so I don't get in shit, I was one of the biggest proponents at our hospital. I was showing them, uh, like, there was the Atul Gawande's um, uh, New Yorker article saying, like, Hey, look, this is the approach they used people in, in hospital wearing masks and distancing to really mitigate the risk of healthcare providers getting it. So I was, at, I was pro mass. I was like, Hey, throw that. Like we should be actually wearing masks in hospital. So um, I just wanted to throw that before I forgot. Yeah. So, sorry to catch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so first of all, I agree. And, and I'll put that out there as well. I think masks are definitely for the hospital. It makes sense in certain high risk settings makes sense, especially indoors where it's very difficult to um, physically distance. But I agree. The problem with this is it's a very, very nuanced topic. And we, we always, uh, whenever we talk about this, we always bring up Thunder Bay, Ontario or Kenora, Ontario, or Pickle Lake. You have places where they haven't had any cases, some cases, or they haven't had cases in weeks. And to make a mandatory mask protocol there where you already have essentially suppressed or absent community transmission, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense, right? But it, I understand it's difficult because this is, you know, you're, you're looking at this thing, you have to make a different recommendation depending on where you are. The other problem with the mask thing is that I think that there was a lot of um, kind of uh, leaps of faith and uh, it, people were very willing to go from, you know, uh, an assumption to what you want to do in practice. Okay. So the thing is math, well, you know what? We know that, look, when you cough, nothing much comes out. So that must mean that it, uh, it, uh, protects everyone. Let's uh, have everybody wear masks. Right. Uh, so that's why, what I think that the conversation is nuanced and nobody is saying that masks have no role. I just think that when we try to talk about masks having role in a certain place, you get shouted down by the unfortunate, the politicization of the whole thing. So I, you know, I, when I go out, I think in Mississauga, we were one of the highest hit regions in the country. And I think that wearing a mask uh, when the community transmission was high, especially indoors, makes a lot of sense. But in other places, it certainly didn't. And I think that the best thing is you make something where wearing of masks is normalized. You want to wear one, you do it. And the thing is that if you're not wearing one outside, nobody should be shamed for it. And I think that in certain things that uh, if you're getting your, your teeth done, teeth done, you go, go to the dentist, you're getting your hair he done. Did. <laughs> he he did. did. You're going to get your hair done. That makes sense because as Isaac mentioned, you are in close proximity to somebody for a long period of time, right? So those situations make sense. I think that the big issue is we should look at this uh, in a nuanced way and have open discussion as opposed to the kind of like rah, rah, rah mask or rah, rah, rah anti-mask that you see down in the States. Mm. 
Yeah, I like that. I agree. I, I mean, a lot of the points I was going to say have already have already been touched on. I think, like at the end of the day, you know, if you're in a high risk setting or a high burn setting, or you know, even in a moderate setting, you're going into an indoor place. You put on a mask. It's as simple as that. I, I really think it's a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. It's pretty simple. But people are calling for like blanket mandates across the country. And I thought that was a little ridiculous because, you know, there is such a regional, regional variability in this infection. Yeah, I get it. People travel, people move. Uh, but I think the mandate is kind of like the last bullet you have uh, in your gun. And there's a lot of things that you can do before you mandate masks. I, I kind of like Alberta's approach where they're, they're uh, through July, they've given out something like 20 million masks. They gave them out at uh, drive-through restaurants. They gave them out at uh, homeless shelters. They gave them out at, you know, pot the populations that were at greater risk for having this infection. They're like normalizing mask wearing. They're showing people how to wear them. It's just a smart approach. And I think if we did that across the board, um, you're going to see more and more people wear them, more and more people do the right thing, especially if you see cases climb. And again, if you have very low levels of transmission in a community, I, I personally, I don't think that mandating masks is, is the right approach at that point. Mm -hmm. But of course, if, 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 you know, if you're in a Florida or an Arizona type scenario, yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's, that's terrific. You know, it's mm -hmm. probably helpful. And again, it's one tool in a much, in a, in a, in the toolbox. And there's, of course, we have to remember that it's not, it, you know, it, 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 the masks are really on the totem pole or on the pyramid or whatever we're calling it. It's kind of like the least important rung. Like it's the physical distancing that's really doing the heavy lifting. I think yeah. masks certainly can help. Uh, but, but I think they're, they're sort of the least important. Now, I, I like what Suan also said about, you know, making these leaps of faith, like at an individual level. Yeah. Like no shit. They work. We know we've known this long before COVID-19. You put something over your, your mouth and nose and your coffee, you're just going to spew uh, fewer, less virus into the surroundings, be it influenza, respiratory, syncytial virus, doesn't matter. Uh, but, but the, the key thing here is making those, those magical leaps, and those jumps from individual level data to population level data. And, and, you know, of course, as uh, Quadra, as you pointed out, you see a lot of people not wearing them right or touching their face. And, you know, it's it just, you can't, just like you never make the magical leap from something that works in a test tube to something that, oh, this will be a great cure for people because it works in this test tube. You know, you still, you can't make that leap from human to, to population. So I think I, I don't have problems with mandating masks where there's like significant transmission in addition to when other public health measures are, are taken, but you're not going to mask your way out of, a, a pandemic. I think you, you clearly need several other important public health interventions as well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I mean, I, I like the normalization approach uh, and, and take, I think there's a softer approach to, to, uh, to, to this rather than mandate. But listen, like at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I have the total respect of our, our public health authorities wow. at the local level, at the provincial level, at the federal level, and, you know, I was in Toronto talking about mask mandates and how I just didn't think it was like, I just didn't think it was the right thing to do at the right time. Our public health leaders and political leaders says we're we said we're mandating masks. Awesome. I'm all in. I totally respect that decision. Like we can also have normal adult conversations about normal adult topics. 
and not have temper tantrums like we're seeing yeah. some people do for masks yeah. against masks like like and fighting in walmart uh, but oh, yeah, yeah. yeah i i gotta say though the, the, the couple of things that i would add to that like the the one thing that also made my, made me change my perspective a bit was hey we're going into phase three at most places we're opening up gyms and so forth knowing that if you're going to add something that's going to mitigate risk too that made sense to me a little bit you know like but it wasn't being verbalized that way i i don't know if that's just my deduction or that's the way they felt but that to me at least hey we're opening things up more add this added barrier no pun intended pun kind of intended maybe uh this will help reduce transmission the other point i like is the the normalization i i honestly cuz you know you you go to you go to Walmart or whatever. I don't know why I'm picking on Walmart. And if someone's wearing a mask, someone's not wearing a mask. You kind of feel awkward. Or should I be wearing one? Should I not be wearing yeah. one? Like yeah. normalizing it, I think is a is a, a fair point. And then the other one that I liked, uh, I don't know if you remember this, Isaac. You posted this one about so in in Kingston there was that uh, I don't know the nail nail salon outbreak at the nail salon. Uh, yeah, where they weren't. It sounded like they weren't, no one was wearing, well, maybe they were wearing masks. I don't know. It sounded like they weren't. And then, right. then you, you posted this one where there was two positive of, uh, people at a, I think it was a hair, hair salon. Hair salon, yeah. And they were wearing masks and the patients or the um, patrons were wearing masks. Right. And nobody got, nobody yeah. got, uh, trans, like, uh, got COVID. Amazing. And I was like, you know, you know what? This is, I mean, I'm sorry because I'm not as, like uh, read up as you guys, but this is like something that I could like understand. This is something yeah. like that, like is to me, you could put two and two together there and say like, okay, yeah. now, now we're talking. Um, yeah. So yeah, I thought that was a great little uh, send off. Actually, I thought, yo. Remember with the mask though, there's an equity piece too that we didn't discuss. Yes. Right? Yeah. If you're mandating masks, yes. you cannot you have to let people interact with the world around them. You cannot restrict people from interacting with the world around them. Public transportation is for everyone. Public parks are for everyone. I public love buildings this. I are love public. This. They're for yeah. everyone. If you're going to mandate them, you give them out free of charge so that people can interact with the world around them. Some people can't Proper. afford a mask. Some people can't make a mask. So, for example, the TTC, Toronto's uh, public transportation, is giving out a million masks for people that so they can ride the subway or the bus and they won't get booted off if they don't have a mask on like there there's an equity piece that has to be spoken with those mandates come uh comes an equity piece that is extremely important yeah and straight up if you're going to be serious about it give them out you know what i mean Damn if, right if, you're, if this is where you want to play it if this is where you want to play it let's go give them out make yeah. sure that uh everyone stays safe if you're Yep. That's the, uh, if, if we're serious about it. One last thing, uh, maybe before questions, I know I keep saying this for real. Um, what is, for people that are non-medical or non-medical, reliable, what, like, what do you guys like for go-to for COVID information? Like, do you guys have a source or is it just your, your connections? Isaac, and, uh, Isaac. Oh, oh, hey, hey. I, I, I go to his Twitter feed, Isaacs. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, that's what I've been doing too. Like, it's, yeah. you go to Isaac, you're throwing down some game. I'm game. like, what do you find this? What do you find this? Okay, I. It's not just for COVID. I mean, like for infectious diseases, tropical medicine, and general internal medicine. I, I mean, I read 
all the time. And I have like a million medical journals that I get the online table of contents fed right into my email. And like, I'll scan them. And if there's something interesting, I'll click it, I'll read it, I'll save it. I have like a folder that's 8 trillion gigabytes large of like cool papers organized by different diseases and different regions and different, you know, stuff like that. So I just, I read a ton. Um, and that's, that's typically how I get my information. I'm very skeptical about like um, uh, social media for knowledge acquisition. Uh, you know, there, unless you know what you're talking about and you can, and you, you know, I think you have to have your bullshit detectors on high alert because uh, there's just a lot of garbage out there. So I, I, I like there's some very good peer, I mean, but that's very medical, that's very clinical, yeah. and that's very epidemiologic. So it might not be helpful for the general public. For the general public, you know, reputable websites, WHO has an awesome web page. They've got a myth busting section as well where they answer great questions and great myths. Uh, Government of Canada has a good website. The United States Centers for Disease Control has a great website as well where they have like Q&A just with common questions that people ask. So there's some very reputable sources. Uh, and uh, But for every reputable source, there's about 8 trillion garbage sources. And like, I, I, I'm still considering myself a newbie to, to, um, to something like Twitter. I mean, I joined about a year and change ago, but I only really started going on it about a, a year ago. And like, it's incredible to watch the creation and proliferation of trash science <laughs> online. Like you're watching this unfold in real time. And not only that, like pseudo experts with like garbage opinions that are like factually incorrect or just making shit up. And then you get this sort of like-a-thon and spread-a-thon and it's just like, it's unreal. And then occasionally like you know i think like sue and i are pretty dialed in like we sort of know who what's happening and we know the literature and stuff like that but sometimes you watch that spiral into something bigger and occasionally it makes its way into the mainstream media and so like you'll be watching uh, a news channel you'll say like why is that person like this guy or girl or whoever they, like they don't know what they're talking about like how is that person like it's insane to watch so yeah. i stick to like reliable try stick to reliable resources but of course you know we're in the information age and, and sadly a bit of a misinformation age as well and, and here we go i mean one thing i'll say is even the even when it comes to these journals like you still have to have your spot like your uh, skepticism mm. uh yeah senses up because uh, there's there's been some garbage publications of late oh yeah my god um, I know I keep saying I'm going to go to questions, but I thought of a doozy one that, that has always bothered me. And I get a few nurses that often ask me this question. The aerosolized, the um, airborne. Continue. Air Continue. Airborne. Okay. Airborne. Man. Okay. I don't, I'm afraid to answer this with my, actually, I'm not even going to put my opinion. I'm just asking, I'm going to ask the experts. I'm not. Okay, so for those that are non-medical, <laughs> the question is, can you get COVID in an airborne fashion? Will the, the, the virus attach to uh, airborne particles and then you walk into a room and you could inhale it and then bec become COVID positive? Become COVID positive. Okay, here's what I'll, I'll say. I think that- Because WHO, man, they throw yeah, down with that. Yeah, they, they were, and here, here's what I think is, there's a disconnect here between the kind of the, the physicists and like the, the, you know, the, the environmental um, um, scientists and what we do clinically, right? 
they are, I think, absolutely correct. This is a spectrum. You have your big droplets all the way to your small droplets, right? But then what we, we have to think about what we do clinically. Clinically, what is the thing that has helped us um, decrease the, uh, decrease the um, uh, transmission? And that has been basically wearing a, uh, a face shield, a surgical mask, um, and uh, you know, a gown. We've been doing that mostly since the beginning, except for N95s in certain areas, and we've been protecting ourselves, okay? And I think that's the big thing. So whether, whether or not, it doesn't matter, whether it's airborne like measles, whether it's um, uh, you know, completely droplet like, I don't know, um, influenza. I think the point is, is that we know that if we wear the, the PPE that we have been wearing since the beginning, not N95, not a, um, a, uh, a negative right. pressure room, you can protect yourself against COVID. Are there situations? Yeah, you know, the, the one fringe situation is a choir. When you have a big bunch of people that are singing all together, yeah, if you're standing six meters away, possibly you can, you can get it. But I think the point is what we have been doing clinically has been shown that it's working. And that's the reason why we call that droplet, but what a um, uh, physicist calls droplets different. The point being is that what we've been doing is working and we have lots of evidence for that now. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Those you are huge. Those are huge. Guns. Yeah, I don't want to scare anybody. Okay? Your boy. Yeah, no, I, okay. No, I'm good. You know what? I'm sitting this out. I, I, <laughs> I just want to say like, in all fairness, listen, like, I like that spectrum. I love you described the spectrum. There's the droplet end of the spectrum. There's the aerosol end of the spectrum. And if we're thinking about this, this clearly falls towards the droplet end of the spectrum. Hey, has, can someone get it through an airborne route of transmission? Yeah, of course they can. It's just probably way less common compared to those that get it from the droplet end of the spectrum. Like it, it, it is a spectrum. Um, and this one clearly falls toward the droplet side. Does that mean 100% of cases are acquired through droplets? No, of course not. There's probably been some, but not many, uh, relatively few. Uh, it's like a smaller proportion are, are, are transmitted through through aerosols. But but by and large, this is a droplet. Uh, you know, this is a droplet uh, transmitted infection. I, I, I and when we use droplet easy. precautions in the hospital, we're protected. Like we're wearing surgical masks and eye protections and a gown and gloves. We're not getting this infection. If you have that PPE and you use it appropriately, you're going to do just fine. Whereas we will, let, let's contrast that with measles, right? Measles yeah. is, is, you know, it has a, what, what is it? An R value of like 12 or something like that. The point being is that if I walked into a room with somebody with measles and, you know, I wasn't wearing everything and I didn't have a negative pressure room in a N95, I would get measles. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm vaccinated. I, I promise you. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but the point is, is that it's, uh, that is not the case. It's clearly not the case with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Okay, okay, we, we're, uh, I've been delaying the questions because we've been having hot topics, but a couple things before going to the questions. You want the, you want the content sent to you? You want to see this video and the audio put in ID into the, the text box? It'll come at you in full effect. Um, once again, uh, give them props to Julia, uh, who's helping out uh, tremendously with our social media presence and also her awesome site. Thank you for uh, uh, coordinating all of this. Uh, and once again, August 9th, Ketogenic and 
and low carb approaches to health. Looking forward to y'all connecting at, on, at the conference. 3.30, it's going to be awesome. Ivor Cummins, Joy Kitty, and Dr. Paul Mason. Jump on it. Okay, so here we got, we got some questions from the audience. Um, okay, there's a lot of questions here, actually. Okay. Uh, oh, man. I think Sumo should take these. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, we got 15 minutes, so I'm going to try and fly through. If you agree with the answer, just... Should we do rapid fire? Yep, this is rapid fire. Rapid fire? Okay. Let's do it. A, a teacher friend of mine wonders about efficacy of face shield versus mask. Actually, I saw this a lot in Quebec. People would just go face shield, no mask. Um, I got it. Okay. I love it. I love face I love shield. it, too, actually. I, I think, yeah. like, intuitively, it. yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know... They've never been rapid fire. They've never been studied head-to-head. -head. I'm sure those comparisons will be done. I think the key point in community settings, we're not talking about medical settings, cover your face holes, okay? Doesn't matter. You got a mask on, great. You got a face shield on, great. Just put something on and wear it. Now, some jurisdictions say we want masks. Okay, wear a damn mask. If you're not in one of those jurisdictions, you can do whatever you want, but just put something on. Uh, some people feel like they can't wear a mask for whatever reason, they might not be able to wear a mask. Put a face shield on. Face Even shield if you're on. in a jurisdiction that says you have to wear a mask, uh, if you know, I don't think anyone's going to give you a hard time. You say, you know what? I've got a medical problem. I can't wear a mask. I'm wearing a face shield. I don't think anyone's going to give you a hard time. Reasons I like face shields: they cover the eyes, in addition to the nose and the mouth. They're more comfortable to wear, and uh, verbal and nonverbal communication are much easier with a oh, face shield. So okay. I really like them. I think there's a lot of good reasons to wear them. Um, and in a community setting, I wouldn't split hairs about mass versus face shield as long as you got something on. I think you're doing I, something right. And that's I, all I got to say about that. I love it. I, I, I mean, intuitively, I agree with all of the above. Just Not Cobra that. Commander it. You'll be fine. <laughs> Do you guys think we are largely underestimating the amount of asymptomatic people who are COVID positive? I don't mean to be a jerk, but can I take that one? Yeah, it is. Yeah, all for the sure. rest? Okay. I don't know the answer. Up, <laughs> we, have, we have screwed up asymptomatic transmission from the very beginning. This is a pain in the ass because we haven't defined it properly. It should be pretty easy to define. Asymptomatic means no symptoms. But the way the studies have been done and how they've been done uh, has really uh, poorly studied this. I would say, even though you're reading in some studies 40% and 30% and 20%, I would quite frankly say that this is still unknown because we haven't done a good job studying it. I, I, and you know what, Mike, I could be wrong. Prove me wrong. Oh, maybe I'll be wrong. I don't know. I'm just open-minded to the data that comes in. I think when this is studied more vigorously and we truly ensure that we're looking at asymptomatic people, not mildly symptomatic people, not people who are pre-symptomatic, who have no symptoms, and then go on to develop symptoms. I'm talking about people from the time they get the virus to the time the virus is gone, they have no symptoms whatsoever. I think when we study that population well, I bet that we're going to find two things. Number one, it's a lot smaller than we think. Number two, they're not involved significantly in driving the pandemic. Hey, that's just a thought. I'm totally open-minded. I could be wrong, but I just suspect that when we have that data and it's good quality data and that they're truly asymptomatic people, not like the studies that we've seen that have mega problems, I think we're going to see this because there are small studies where they've really done a good job in do taking a clinical history. Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk taking a clinical history uh, is that hard? But it is. It's a, it's a, it's a learned skill. 
and you've got to do it well and you've got to follow these people longitudinally, not just at a single point in time to say, oh, your test is positive, you have no symptoms. That's not good enough. You can't do these cross-sectional studies. Uh, so when we study people with a good history and we study them longitudinally, there's been a few of these studies. And in the very few studies that we've seen that have actually done that well, the asymptomatic component has been a lot smaller than what it's purported to be in other studies. So I, I just have a feeling that when we're talking about this two years from now and looking back, I, I think the asymptomatic component is going to be smaller than we think it is based on the data we have available now. That's all I got to say about that. Forrest Gump over here. Good answer, man. I like that. <laughs> I like that. that was, I, yeah, I agree. It was fresh. fresh. Jumbo shrimp, fried shrimp, <laughs> shrimp, shrimp. I love you, Jen Ng. Um, uh, <laughs> where are we going? I, <laughs> when do you think we'll have adequate rapid testing, essentially? That's the question. Are, is uh, there any signs of loser one, Suman. Yeah, I, I question for Suman Chakrabarty. Su like, question for Suman Chakrabarty. Uh, yeah, uh, you know what? To be honest with you, like there are certain areas where the, the it, it's been used, and they actually tried to use it here in Canada. Uh, the the rapid testing, they had a huge problem with the um, swabs. The swabs. But I haven't yeah. heard anything from the cube since that time. But uh, um, I think that at some point going forward, like we're going to have it, it's going to be widely available, especially kind of more for your focus settings, especially, you know, going out into remote communities is definitely going to be available. But right now, nothing that to my knowledge that is widespread. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, right now, uh, I will say one thing is that we had a problem with diagnostics here in Ontario. Uh, and then we, I think we have rapidly been able to kind of correct that. But I think the next stage will be to do exactly what, what uh, here is, is, you know, like a point of care kind of test, possibly not with um, an NP swab, but like a saliva sample, for example, something that yeah. is really good and works and has good sensitivity. The first ones that I've, I've been seeing the results of, the sensitivity is not so good, but uh, I think that that's something that could be perfected. That's exciting. And I hope it's coming quick. Um, did you, were you guys aware of any of the data of when uh, the kids went back to school in Quebec, like in terms of um, were there any increased transmission or kids that got sick, hospitalized or anything along those lines or any, not necessarily in Quebec or any of the, trying to think any, any places where, I guess BC let their kids go back to school too. Yeah. Any of, any of that uh, come down your pipe? Oh, there's like, there's, okay, there's a couple of things. Like, this is always a very contentious subject. And, you know, you, people talk about different data from different countries with going back to school. There's a Finland-Sweden comparison uh, uh, and looking at uh, younger kids versus older kids. And, it, you know, a lot of the data points in the direction of the younger the children, maybe the safer it is. Um, but there's, there's holes in that because sometimes... Uh, younger children can get this infection, but they don't really manifest symptoms, so they're not actually tested, uh, so they might go undetected. Uh, there's the well-documented Israel uh, saga where uh, schools were significantly oh, yeah. involved with amplifying the infection, and Israel actually had their epidemic under terrific control, but uh, it was in schools, and it was amplified in schools, and now they're, they're actually, it, it, of course, nothing stays localized. It moved out of the schools into the community, and they're having some significant problems now. Uh, Korea just came out with some very interesting data. Again, it's not perfect, but the theme is older kids were more involved with transmission compared to younger kids, but that's not perfect. And people are going to send me hate mail for saying that. 
Uh, I'm but, writing you uh, right one right so, now. There we go. So like there, there is, you know, there's a growing database, but I, I think the fundamental principles, like Suman pointed out earlier, kids can get infected, kids could transmit the infection. And it's all, you know, sure, we can split hairs and talk about efficient transmission and symptoms and stuff like that. But if we go by the fundamental principles that kids can get infected and kids can transmit it, and then you think about putting 300 of them into a box and shaking it up, yeah, so you're going you're gonna to transmit this infection. It's going to spread. It It can easily spread in a school setting. So I think the key is, you know, we really have to implement these fundamental public health principles in the schools such that if it is introduced, it's just less likely to be transmitted from kid to kid or from kid to teacher. For real, for real. Um, I think it's this will be a good last question. Mind. Any data on occupational transmission in the hospital? I mean, I think it needs to be more specific. Um, I can give a, a general answer. Okay, yeah, if you want it, if this is good enough for you. This is actually something that uh, um, uh, Isaac and I have had some uh, some interesting discussions on. So there is an interesting thing. So I, I, I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but one interesting thing is across Canada, there were lots of healthcare workers that have been um, uh, described as being infected in um, you know all across, all across the spectrum, docs, nurses, personal support workers, et cetera, et cetera. But interestingly, we had, we had very, very few deaths across Canada for healthcare workers, which is very different than um, what happened in, for example, New York City, what happened in uh, Italy, where tons of docs, tons of nurses, tons of lots of people got infected and died from COVID-19. Now, on one hand, you could think, okay, well, maybe this has to do with, you know, maybe it was just, um, uh, you know, the numbers of cases. But I wonder, and uh, I, I think this is an interesting thing that we're going to learn later on, I wonder where the inoculum of infection has something to do with the severity of disease. And what I mean by that is, you know that back in Italy and in New York City, they were having big time PPE problems, right? So you had like, these people going around with, with crappy PPE and seeing one patient after another and get, getting exposed. And I think that has something to do with how sick they were. I can't prove it. But that's what I think is going on. But across Canada, lots of healthcare workers involved. A couple died. You know, there, there, there was a handful that died, but nothing compared to what we saw in other places. Yeah, certainly the uh, personal uh, PSWs, that, that there seemed to be uh, – yeah, there, there was a few cases that you would see in the media in terms of whether they're, I think, mostly in nursing homes and what have you. But um, – yeah, I always wondered about how well they were being protected. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a great point, though, Suman. Um, we are at 828. I, I think we're. Th this is all the time we have. I just want to give some mad love to the boys. You guys represented hard today, man. Scotch and such. I just, you know what? There was some tough questions in there, too. Schools and masks, like, you know what? We got a little bit on the, the raw side of issues that, um, you know, that are political and, and divisive. But uh, this is what we're all about on Solving Healthcare, guys, is giving you a balanced... Um, we just want to give the truth, man. Like, not politicize, like, experts that are in it. You know, we got frontline staff. All of us have been in front of COVID-19 patients and and... I think what's coming from all of us is just 
you know, doing our best to inform you guys and to worry about what you need to worry about and not worry about what you don't need to worry about because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so I just want to give you guys mad props for doing this. I think it's, I, I know it's helpful for a lot of the guys that are, that are listening now. So, uh, much love boys this was awesome thanks so much for having us on for having us man anytime all right guys thanks so much for all of you guys that listened in uh connect with us on quadcast99 at gmail.com instagram we're on youtube we're on facebook at quadcast if you have uh, a tiktok please tell me you have a tiktok i would rather like i still have <laughs> dignity I still have dignity. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Uh, if you guys are TikTok, I'll just say no. It. Okay. What well, you never 12? know, man. No, but you see grown ass people doing TikTok oh, like crazy. What's wrong with people? Oh, my God. Crap. Anyways, a lot of love there. Connect with us. We're going to continue to bring out some monster contact content. So uh, thanks so much, guys, and take care. Take have care. a good night. You too, night. guys.